Okay, so I tried to let everyone know ahead of time, today's sermon is um, rated PG. Um, I'm not going to say anything shocking or explicit um, in nature, but I am going to use plenty of Bible words that uh, may require some explanation by parents later. Um, I tend to think that if your child is old enough to ask a question, they're probably old enough to get an age-appropriate answer to that question. Um, but as the parent, it is your judgment call how much information you want to share with them, and I want you to be prepared. Uh, there's also a chance, if you're watching this online, um, that Facebook will cut the feed. <laughs> uh, I've had that happen before, so uh, if I say something that's considered uh, taboo these days, um, they might do that. So just be aware of that. Um, hopefully that won't happen. But with that, let's begin. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 27. <clears throat> it says this, You have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. This is the seventh commandment. Um, like the sixth commandment, which we talked about last week, the seventh commandment is short. It's easy to remember, relatively easy to keep, at least it was in the mind of a first century Jew. But I need to say, because I'm talking to a 21st century audience, we live in 21st century America, and we are, in my opinion, perhaps the most sexually broken society in the history of the world. I don't say that lightly. Um, roughly 20% of all married adults admit to cheating on their spouse at least once. The average American will have more than 20 partners before marrying. Nearly half of all marriages end in divorce. Nearly half of all children are born out of wedlock. 20% of all advertising Think about this. 20% of all advertising is designed to trigger the sexual part of our brains. Between 75 and 95% of all men view pornography regularly. Between 30 and 50% of women. The number of LGBT adults has doubled in just the last 10 years. 20% of all adults between the ages of 18 and 25 identify as LGBT. Now, I could go on, but you get the idea, right? And by comparison, if you were a first century Jew and you were listening to Jesus' sermon, they were living a lifestyle that was much closer to how the Bible describes God's design for human sexuality. And yet, Jesus did not think of them as pure. So that's what's interesting. I mean, if you take this, this picture of our culture and how, whether you think it's sexually broken or not, it's much different than it was in the first century Jewish culture, for sure. And still, Jesus did not think of them as pure. He didn't say, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Good job for keeping the seventh commandment so well. Good job, guys. You've done it. He didn't say that. 
Look what he said. Verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, just like last week, Jesus uses a commandment that most people think they're keeping. Most people check that box and say, yeah, I've committed adultery. The vast majority of people who are listening to Jesus had never committed an adulterous action. And yet Jesus says that they are guilty of breaking the seventh commandment. He says very clearly that sin is not limited to our actions. It also involves our desires. Okay? Just as last week he linked anger to murder, Jesus now links lust to adultery. He's saying that the law is not only concerned with our actions. God is also concerned, maybe especially concerned, with what's going on on the inside, in our desires. What is it that our heart wants? Now, I need to be clear about this because I don't want you to mishear me. Sexual desire is normal. God created it. He created the entire experience. And it's very good. It is a gift from God. He has given it to us for, um, for many reasons. Not just uh, childbearing. But He has not given it to us for use in every context. <clears throat> I am, um, most of you know, I spent 13 years ministering to students, um, adolescents, uh, junior high and high school students, and I often got a question from young men in particular about their relationships. They would ask me, how far is too far? In other words, what can I get away with before it becomes sin? And I learned to deal with that question by telling them that I think that's a very bad question. And I think it reveals our tendency as humans to define sin very narrowly. That is our tendency. That was the problem with the religious leaders in the first century. Okay? Like Bill Clinton, they defined sexual sin in very narrow ways. But if we accept the definition of sexual sin that's offered by Jesus, which is much more broad then what he's saying is that we've all gone too far. Not just these people, pretty much every adult. And that is a very broad definition of sin that even includes our thoughts. No one sees but God. And God takes it very seriously. How seriously does God take it? Well, look at what Jesus says next. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lost or that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. 
Now, <clears throat> this is not a one-off statement. This is one of Jesus' favorite teachings. Um, he used it apparently often. And it's obviously, it's extremely violent, right? We, if you like close your eyes and imagine this, we recoil at the thought of someone actually doing this. And that's the point. Our own sin should make us recoil like that. You see, no one in the history of Christianity, um, there might have been a few weird historical points where this happened, but for the most part, the vast majority of history of Christianity, um, no one thinks that Jesus wants us to literally cut eyes and hands, right? Nobody does this. I don't know of any denomination that, you know, thinks that's okay. Everyone pretty much agrees this is hyperbole. Jesus is teaching a lesson. What's the lesson? Think about it like this. If you're diabetic and it gets out of control, so much so that you develop gangrene in your foot, and I've known people that this has happened to. This happened to my grandfather. Um, what will the doctor tell you to do? Amputate your foot. Right? And as terrible as that is, we understand the medical need, right? If you keep your foot, you will die. Remove the foot and you will live. And that is the illustration. What Jesus is teaching is that sin is deadly. And we must be willing to take drastic measures to deal with it because it is trying to kill us. And it will. And notice... Jesus is so serious that he seriously he mentions hell twice, okay? In fact, Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. And if you follow his argument, what's he saying? He's saying that we actually deserve hell long before we've even committed the sinful action that we're so afraid of. He's teaching that we deserved hell based only on the lustful intent in our hearts, something that only God knows about. And that alone can destroy us. And this is perhaps the most countercultural thing I could be preaching about, right? Um, because in a culture like ours, no one really believes that sex is dangerous or even a big deal as long as it's consensual. That's the one box you have to check in our culture. And literally, I mean, pretty much no one thinks of desires as a moral issue at all anymore. Even Christians struggle to understand this, even though this has been the teaching of the church for 2,000 years. Part of the problem is that we haven't done a great job in the church of explaining God's design for sex and marriage. We just don't talk about it enough. We've been afraid to talk about it because of what our culture says, which means that our people are consuming the garbage of the world and getting absolutely nothing healthy from the church. And as a result, I don't think that most Christians really understand why God commands sexual purity. Why this is such a big deal to Him. Why the Bible talks about it so much. And the, cripple, the, the typical Christian answers that we hear are, well, you might catch an STD. 
or you better be careful, you might get pregnant, right? And that never persuades anyone. We know this, don't we? But God is very clear about this. Extremely clear about it in the Scriptures. Are we paying attention? Look what he says, 1 Corinthians 6.18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Sprint from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In other words, Paul's saying, it is wrong because it is both extremely selfish and it's also self-harming. Why is it self-harming? Because it violates God's design for us in sex and marriage, what He intended for us to be experiencing. We're, we're violating the owner's manual, if you will. Hebrews 13, verse 4, it says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. In other words, <clears throat> there is, as I said, sex is a gift, but there is a right context and a wrong context for sexual intimacy, just as... There's a right context and a wrong context for starting a fire. Fire is a gift. I can start a fire in my fireplace. And on Christmas morning, it's beautiful. And it warms the room. And it, it adds to the, to the spirit, the atmosphere, right? But I cannot start a fire in the middle of my living room. You see, one thing is, in the right context, it's beautiful. In the other context, it's destructive. Listen to this quote by Lewis uh, Smeeds. He says this. He says, when two bodies are united, two persons are united. Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. The soul is in the act. And then he goes on to say that, when you participate in sex outside of marriage, it is a life-uniting act that is being committed without life-uniting intent. Do you see how that might be dangerous? How that might be destructive? And what's weird about our culture is, I think deep down everybody kind of knows it's destroying us, but we, it's hurting us. But because everybody's believing the lie, we choose to believe it. We also need to be teaching this to our kids early and often because Jesus commanded us to teach everything that he taught us, right? We also need accountability and encouragement because we're dealing with something that is much more dangerous than most people realize. Um, last week I watched an interview between uh, one person and another and uh, the, the lady in the interview was a former adult film star. And she talked about the immense shame that she carries for the decisions that she made early in life. She talked about men approaching her in public because they recognized her from her films. And the things those men would say and do to her in public because they assumed it was okay. She described it as a living hell. You see, we convince ourselves that our secret sins are not a big deal, that the only person that affects is me, right? 
because nobody knows. But brothers and sisters, we are people made in the image of God. Every person in this room, so are the people on the screen. And Jesus commands us to take it seriously. To recognize what we're dealing with. Who we're hurting. Cut it off, He says. Eliminate obvious sources of temptation from your life. Unfiltered, unmonitored, and unrestricted access to a smartphone is not going to work for most people I know, especially men. Just not. That's like leaving the gates to the city wide open when you know the enemy is standing outside ready to take the city. It's no defense. It's not acceptable. So that's what Jesus says about uh, sexual sin. But we need to consider one final word from Jesus this morning, beginning in verse 31. It says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so what's going on here? Jesus is referring to a specific command in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. It is, to my knowledge, the only law concerning divorce in the Old Testament. It's about a rare circumstance in which a man might try to remarry a woman that he has already divorced in order to somehow gain a second dowry. That's what that special weird law is about in Deuteronomy 24. So the law was given actually to protect the woman from being taken advantage of by a man. That's why it's there. But Apparently what had happened is the Jews had started using that obscure law as a justification for any man to divorce his wife for basically any reason. And that's what Jesus is condemning here. He interprets the law much more narrowly. So narrowly that he actually says in our text, divorce is only permitted in cases of adultery. Period. Now, If you divorce someone only because you don't want to be with them anymore, what Jesus is saying is that it makes you guilty guilty of adultery. And there is more that I could say about divorce from Scripture. And if you've got questions, we can talk about it. I can point you to some helpful resources and, and we can look at the Scriptures together. But Jesus is sufficiently clear. He is not a fan of divorce And it is almost never the right decision, especially for the children involved. So, I need to say, I know this is a tough sermon. I understand that. Jesus cuts us pretty deep. But I want you to remember, if you've been keeping up with the Sermon on the Mount, He is not wounding us without cause or purpose. He is wounding us 
or exposing us in order to heal us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Okay? So if the goal of Jesus is to lead us to a place where we sense the need for repentance and faith, He must first convince us that we actually need that. And that was the primary purpose, or has been always, the primary purpose of the law. It is not meant only to show us a better way to live. It is that, but it also holds up a mirror to show us our deep need for God to do something for us, to save us, to redeem us. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to use all of this, whatever you're feeling, whatever I've said that may or may not have offended you or hurt you, use this as an opportunity to dig deeper. I want to suggest to you that if we could summarize our main problem with the seventh commandment, I think it is probably a lack of contentment. I think that's the central heart issue here. Lust is about lack of contentment. In other words, am I content or satisfied with who the Lord has provided me as a spouse? Or if you're not currently married, are you satisfied in your current singleness? Do you trust God in it? Are you satisfied with the male body or the female body that God gave you? Are you satisfied with His will for your life? His design for you? I think that this inordinate desire, this, this broken desire stuff that we deal with, which the Bible calls lust, it creeps in when we lack contentment. And literally every human being on the planet struggles with this on some level, right? We see it all around us. Our culture is probably the most sexually broken culture because we are the least content people. We are restless. We are lonely. We are naked but unseen. We are unknown. And you can pour your soul into it and it never feels like enough. So here's what I want to say to you. If you think that you've never broken the seventh commandment, you're probably in the wrong place. If you think that you're the most sexually broken person in this room, then you're definitely in the right place because this is where Jesus promises to be. Jesus calls His church a bride. And if we're going to be honest, we're going to be really honest and we're going to look in the mirror we're going to ask ourselves these hard questions about who we really are. We are hardly the perfect bride. 
but he is the perfect groom. You see, God has high view of marriage because he designed it to be a picture of the gospel. Right? Before he created any humans, he already knew exactly what the plan was going to be, how he was going to redeem mankind and send Jesus and all of that. He knew our failures and our faults. He designed marriage. He created marriage. Specifically to be a picture of the gospel. Knowing that's what was going to happen. And in that, he is showing us his love is offered to us freely. It starts with forgiveness and it never ends. But it also required sacrifice. And all of that's also true of marriage, right? You see, Jesus died in order to redeem seventh commandment breakers and to restore the one relationship that we're all searching for in the midst of our sin. And this is the promise of God. This is it. Written to the prophet Hosea about his people. He says this, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know. You shall know. You shall know the Lord. See, no matter what your your past failures may have been, no matter what your present struggles may currently be, Jesus offers us a healthy, eternal relationship with the one that we are desperate to know. And through that relationship, we are offered grace and healing for whatever it is that has been broken. Brothers and sisters, He takes us the way He finds us, okay? He takes us the way He finds us, but He never leaves us the way He found us. He's calling us to purity. But He is also providing the grace that we need to walk in that direction together. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to pray for us as a people living in the midst of a very confused culture. We are desperately searching for authenticity, trying to figure out who we are and why we are here and why we belong. And we want people to accept us no matter what we want, no matter how we choose to live. And and it's a mess. It's a complete and utter mess. And we're all affected by it. And in your tender mercy, you have chosen to make a way for us to be restored to be made into the image of Christ, to be restored in our purity, even so much so that one day we will wear white before you as a great multitude singing praise to our everlasting Father. We pray, Lord, that you would help us. Um, if, if we're feeling conviction, Lord, meet us with your grace. Um, Help us in our journey to follow through on the commitments that we make to You. Father, help us to see um, 
that you are exactly what we need and everything else that we're chasing after is is just a deficient um, replacement. Father, would you heal us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together and sing.